Um, well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Rich, and I'm so glad that you're here again. Uh, if you're new, man, I want to welcome you to our church. I'm so excited uh, that you're visiting. I know how hard it is uh, just to visit a church and find a church. It's one of the most courageous things I think an individual can do to come to a body of strangers and, and just uh, belong, right? Um, right now, as you can tell, uh, we're in a new sermon series titled Theology, and theology just means uh, the study of God, which is the discipline of systematically studying God's word. In our church, uh, what you'll notice is we preach in two different ways. Uh, the first way is traditionally called Lectio Continua, which is just Latin for reading continuously. And this model of preaching goes through a book, right, chapter by chapter, um, consecutively. And we did this for the last two years by going through the Gospel of Luke and then following that up with the Gospel of, or the Book of Acts. And the second form of preaching is the systematic style of preaching. And this gathers multiple biblical texts, which is why we didn't have a singular reading of a text. We, we gather multiple biblical texts to understand a specific theological doctrine. And so what you'll see is we'll have a, a lot of Bible verses. It's the sermon, this systematic sermon will be more reliant on a variety of verses. It's kind of like if you want to study, let's say, um, you know, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, you may buy a commentary, right, on Matthew. Um, but let's say you want to study maybe a biblical doctrine of salvation or marriage, then obviously you would probably buy a book on marriage, a Christian book on marriage that's going to uh, be more dependent on a variety of biblical passages throughout Scripture. And so it's very common um, for Christians and, and theologians and churches to do this. And right now, for the next several months, because we've spent a year in Luke and a year in Acts, we're going to switch gears and systematically examine different theological doctrines. All right? Uh, last Sunday, we studied the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, we'll study the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of the church. Today, uh, we're going to, uh, as you can see here, study the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity now states that there is only one God, and this one God exists as a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it says that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all divine, they're all co-equal, and they are all co-eternal. Uh, Trinitarian theology is a doctrine which professing Christians of all church, churches and church labels and church backgrounds agree upon and have agreed upon since the very beginning. Right? Christian churches, uh, we don't agree on everything. But when you mess with Trinitarian theology, <laughs> that's when we come together. Okay? Um, why is that? Uh, because the affirmation of Trinitarian theology, friends, is one of the most foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. Actually, it's really what sets Christianity apart from different religions, and it's Trinitarian theology is what sets true Christianity apart from lookalikes. All right? Uh, understanding true Trinitarian theology helps you discern between true Christianity and other so-called religions that claim to be Christianity, and we're going to take a look at how we can do that today. But we, we get this Trinitarian theology from Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 28, he affirms uh, this through a Trinitarian blessing, right? He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. There you go. 
the Trinitarian blessing. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul also affirms uh, the Trinity. He says, There is no God but one, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, right? he's talking about other religions that worship maybe multiple gods, and that's why he calls them so-called gods. He says, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. He's kind of showing how God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, they are both equated with whom are all things and for whom things we exist. And he's not making this up. He's picking this up from Deuteronomy where God himself tells Israel, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God. So God and Lord are the same. Jesus' disciple Thomas also uh, understands Trinitarian theology when Jesus resurrects and reveals himself to him. Jesus came and stood among them, the disciples, and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Right? So Thomas is taking up this Deuteronomic right, confession that Yahweh, that Jesus Christ is God and Lord. The Apostle John affirms this in the book of Revelation. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God. He combines them together, and he says, the Almighty, he referencing the Father, and the Lamb, referencing the Son. And so there are obviously more biblical passages that we could go through. If you uh, want to study more on this, you can reach out to me. I'll, I'll recommend some great books on this. Um, some of them may be really long, but you could borrow mine if you don't want to buy it first. But what I want to do is, I, want to, I kind of took a brief survey in the New Testament. I want to go back to the Old Testament a little bit. Because when we go to the Old Testament, many theologians say that the first evidence of Trinitarian theology is in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 26, right, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, some argue that God is being inclusive here of the angels in his presence. It's a royal we. Uh, but that wouldn't make sense of the latter half of the verse when God says, in our image, let's make man in our likeness, because the Bible never talks about humanity being made in the image of angels, but in the image of God. So who is God referring to when he says, uh, let us make man and let us make man in our image? After our likeness, well, if you study your um, church history, Augustine and Calvin would say God is self-referencing the Trinity. Genesis 1 is Trinitarian theology. And the Apostle John, in his gospel, maintains this in the very beginning, right off the bat, right out of the gate. He wants to establish, right, to the church, to his audience, Trinitarian theology. And he says this in, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? He's, he's, John is kind of confusing people if you don't understand Trinitarian theology, which says that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, yet distinct. All things were made through him, that is the Word, which we know is Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John is doing something just masterful here, right? He is saying in the beginning of the universe, in Genesis 1, Jesus was there as what? The word. And theologians would call that the pre-incarnate son. Therefore, when the father said, let there be light, those very words coming out of the father's mouth was Jesus as the pre-incarnate son creating light out of the darkness. And then John says, the word became flesh. In other words, the pre-incarnate son, the word of God becomes a human being through the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. And he brings something greater than the physical light in the darkness of the cosmos in the beginning of the world, but he brings a greater spiritual light in the spiritual darkness in the world, right? That's the beauty of Trinitarian theology, you see. You see, theology, church, is not, is not just about, you know, getting God right. You know, it's not just about, oh, wow, look at me, I know the Bible now, right? What do you do? No, it is important to get God right. But the whole purpose of understanding correct theology is because it always leads to doxology. What is doxology? It's a combination of doxa, which means right, glory, and ology. It's saying give glory to God. A correct and robust uh, Trinitarian theology always leads to a not just proper, but more fuller worship of God. Uh, that's the ultimate purpose. That's why we're going through a series of theology. It's not just so like we can be right and know things. It's so that we as Christians, we as a church can have a fuller and more robust worship of the almighty God. Before um, I move on to the next point, though, I, I want to move on to one of my favorite Old Testament verses that calls attention to the Trinity. And this is in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are refusing to worship this uh, golden statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so the law of that land was if you don't worship our gods, we're going to throw you into the furnace. And this is, this is the narrative that we read. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And I love this part, though, because we always think, like, God is going to deliver us from every suffering, and that's why he is worthy. But it says here, if God doesn't deliver us physically, let it be known to you that we still will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then they're thrown into the fire. And we see here several verses later, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said, yes, king. And he said, but I see four men unbound in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Uh, theologians call this a theophany, right? Theo means God. Uh, Fanny means vision. It's where we get the word epiphany. So a theophany means a vision or a manifestation of God. Now, because Nebuchadnezzar was poly, 
polytheistic. He believes this theophany is a son of the many gods in his religion. But um, I'm just going to read to you what Ian Duguid says. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he writes about uh, this passage in his commentary on Daniel, and he says this. This experience was a fulfillment of the words the Lord had spoken to his people through the prophet Isaiah two centuries earlier, which says, Thus says the Lord, He created you, O Jacob, He who formed you. O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Do good continues here. But this is not merely a theophany, which is an appearance of God himself to mere humans. This is a Christophany, it is Emmanuel, God with us. It is the pre-incarnate Christ of the Holy Trinity, not the son of gods that Nebuchadnezzar declared, but the one true son of God. So we see here um, throughout the Old Testament that there are these theophanies and Christophanies that reveal the pre-incarnate son of God uh, that later we see in the New Testament Christ comes to fulfill in the flesh. Now, um, we just kind of went through sort of the biblical material of the Trinity. Uh, But what I want to do now is I kind of want to talk about each individual person in the Trinity uh, and talk about some of its distinctions. It's very important to understand the distinctions of the Trinity. It's not just the fact that, you know, we believe in the three in one God. These three have different roles and different responsibilities. You see, it is uniquely the son's role, not the father's, to take on flesh and die for the sins of the world. And it is uniquely the spirit's role to convict and transform hearts and not the son's role because the son is at the right hand of the father physically and literally. Right? We get this from Jesus himself in John chapter 16. This is really important because sometimes some of us, maybe we may affirm Trinitarian theology, but we're not living it out really well. We're like, well, Jesus is up there. Well, who's here? What's the Holy Spirit? This is what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see? So the administrative outworking, right, of God's plan is executed by the different roles within the Trinity. Um, There's a chart here behind me. Um, It took me two hours to create a very poor version of this. (laughs) And then my wife saw this and she cleaned it up and she created this like in five minutes, okay? (laughs) So so, um, let me just explain this really quickly, right? Uh, You have the administration of the Trinity, right? Whenever there is an executive, you have, they're, they're in charge. That's the administration. And then under that administration, you have different leaders of different departments. And so here you have the Father, and the Father is the one that makes decrees, that makes the laws. He decrees creation. But the Son is the one who accomplishes it. He's the one that accomplishes it. So if the Father decrees the creation, Son accomplishes it through the Word. The Father decrees redemption. We are going to save the world through the cross, Who's going to do that? The son accomplishes 
The son accomplishes it. Now, that doesn't mean the job is done. That accomplishment now needs to be applied. Who applies that work? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son and applies the spiritual power in creation, and the Holy Spirit also applies the spiritual power in redemption. So you see, you may know that the Father sent the Son to save and sanctify you, but you may not know that it is the Holy Spirit that is supposed to transform you. Do you see? And so the Father, in his grace, wisdom, and will, sent his Son on a mission of rescue. The Son came and accomplished the Father's plan for our redemption. And the Spirit draws us and unites us to the Father and the Son so that we may enjoy true Trinitarian fellowship and love. It is the Holy Spirit who comes and indwells in us and connects us, okay, to all the benefits that Christ has accomplished for you. Now, why is this important to know? What practical application does this have for you outside of maybe your personal relationship with God? A lot. Uh, first, Christians have long recognized, right, that Trinitarian theology means that God, before the beginning of time, was eternally a community. Right? And this one community and distinct individuality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit says that they are one in essence, one in value, yet they play different roles and responsibilities. So in the same way, people in the church have a variety of individuality, uh, backgrounds, culture, ethnicities, personality, life stage. Every single one of us has a unique story and testimony. Every single one of us have different gifts and passions, right? Whenever someone comes to the church, and they say, this could be better. I say, well, that's your gift and passion. Why don't you go help out? Another person says, this could be better. I'm like, guess what? You don't care about this. Dude's like, I don't care about that. I can't even tell the sound. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know, right? Well, then, and, but they're like, but ah, kids ministry could be better. Well, that's your gift and passion. You see, everyone is not either or. It's not, we're not fighting for resources, right? We're trying to deploy the resources according to each, each's gifts, each passions. But that doesn't mean we don't have a oneness. That doesn't mean because, you know, um, we don't, we're not married or we don't have a kid that, that we don't have a oneness with the spiritual children in our church. Or because even, even if um, we're not passionate about a particular ministry, that we don't have a oneness with that ministry, that we don't want that ministry to thrive, that, that we're not going to give to it particularly, right? We give to all the ministries, so that's the first thing. The second thing, knowing that our trying God was and is eternally in relationship and com in community, it gives us assurance and confidence that, that fellowship, fellowship is in God's essence. What does that mean? That means that, that because God has fellowship within the Trinity, and Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, Right? Paul's saying, look, this fellowship that the Trinity has, God wants you to have. It's not an exclusive fellowship. Uh, Paul, uh, John says this too. He says, that which we have seen, because they literally saw Jesus, 
That which we heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What this means for us as a church, friends, is that that God wants us into his fellowship. He wants us in there. It's not like, oh, like, like I have to get in there or somehow, you know, that's, that's somewhere where I, I got to work towards. No, God like wants you in his fellowship. And then it's that fellowship that you have. It's so joyful. It's not to be hoarded. It's supposed to be shared. It's supposed to be missional. It's outward facing and welcoming. Because like John says, it's only when other people experience this fellowship that our joy is complete. Uh, the third thing, why the Trinity is so important. Um, well, I mean, those first two things about God, God uh, the Trinity and community, it lets us know that if we're going to be effective in the world, it lets us know how we have to interact as a church, right? Communally, outward facing, relationally. Um, every member, right? First Corinthians chapter 12 talks about how every person in the church is like a member in the body and every member has to be working properly, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we aren't one body. It's really important to understand Trinitarian theology, to understand the very essence of the church and its effectiveness in the world. But uh, the Trinity is also important because what it says is that if Jesus was eternally there as the son of God, it says that there was never a time when the son was not. Right? What does this mean? Stick with me here. What it means is that um, though our brokenness and sin is evident and heart-wrenching, because Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal, what this means is that our, um, God's rescue plan for us was not a last-minute roll of the dice. You see what I'm saying? It's not a backup plan, like, ah, oh, now I got to go do this. Uh, it's not a mad scramble. It's, he's not trying to put out a fire. What this means is that our, our salvation and our restoration into the joyous fellowship of the Trinity was always an eternal conversation between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God was ahead of you before you were ahead with your sin. You see? It's a tremendous comfort. It's a tremendous resource. Paul says this in the book of Ephesians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Sealed, right? There is that applying thing, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it's a tremendous comfort to know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully knowing your disobedience, fully knowing your regrets and your failings, that they were not repelled by us, but fully committed to the plan still. Isn't that awesome? They they didn't need to change the contract up. (laughs) Now, another reason why Trinitarian uh, theology matters, uh, and the, the specific phrase that there was never a moment when the Son was not, Right? It states that Jesus was and is eternally God, is that one of the most popular responses to the resurrection account of Christ is that, is that, that initially Jesus was a good man and just a teacher of love and wisdom, but as the years went by, his followers started to develop higher views of him and they needed to create a narrative that didn't make them look so bad for following a fraud. 
Um, and so what happened was the resurrection stories developed, and after a couple centuries, these legends were written down in the New Testament, and that is how we have Christianity. That is where, we co- that's where it comes from, right? Uh, there's another, um, I, I remember studying this when I was in school, that uh, there was um, an author uh, that was saying that Jesus never said he was God, but the Son of God. So that's what, that was one of his arguments that the church had created this narrative that Jesus went from the Son of God to God. Um, uh, but I remember seeing uh, this comic strip. I don't know if this comic picked that up and wrote something about it, but he has this comic strip where one duck is talking to another duck. And uh, the duck says, Jesus never said he was God. He said he was the Son of God. And the other duck responds by saying, well, what is a son of a duck? <laughs> duck says, crap, right? Ah, duck. Uh, but here's why this is important. Joking aside, right? The second largest religion in the world states that Jesus is not God, but just the prophet. And that Muhammad, 600 years after Jesus, was the last prophet with the final authority to overturn anything Jesus said. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses state that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, but a created lesser God than the Father, which makes them the one true church and any other church that proclaims the Son as equal to the Father as a false church. Mormonism states that Jesus was man who became God, and everyone like Jesus can go through a process of exaltation to Godhood. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but the one thing all these views have in common is that they diminish the deity of Christ. You see? And they are replacing that with someone and something else. And they're replacing Jesus' deity and agenda with a different agenda. You see? Uh, which is why, and that's why theology, it's not just, you know, it's not about like we're right, you're wrong. It's, 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 it's so that you can stick with who Jesus is, what he said, and what he came to do. Trinitarian theology states that the absolute states the absolute fixed status of the co-eternal, co-equal, and divinity of Jesus Christ, which cannot be diminished or replaced. Uh, the book of Hebrews says this. Um, the author says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Right? He's saying, no, that's it. Jesus is the last prophet. He's God. He's the last word. There's no other revelation needed. There are no secret hidden books in the Bible that have not been included. Uh, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God, and there was never a moment when the Son of God was not. It's not just a fancy uh, phrase from church history. It is tremendously practical and has consequences for our everyday lives. Now, it is true that the theological doctrine of the Trinity, that there is only one God, and this God exists as a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this presents a logical tension. There is nothing like this in the world. But for two millennia, the church accepted the doctrine of the Trinity, not because it had a complete understanding of this mystery, but because 
the church clearly saw in this mystery undeniable and revealed by God. Therefore, it was and remained ever since for the church an article of faith far beyond human comprehension. Uh, the theologian John Calvin would say to help someone understand just that uh, God has certain mysteries that we're not able to understand and that doesn't mean it's not true. John Calvin would say the ultimate answer to the mystery of the Trinity is found in another mystery. The ultimate answer to the mystery of the Trinity is found in the mystery of the gospel. What did John Calvin mean by that? Well, he meant this. It is a mystery that a father would give up his biological son to die for the sins of his enemy and then make those enemies his adopted children. That doesn't seem rational or logical, not even lawful. In other words, God, how could you forgive and love and advocate and support and vouch and shower your joy, mercy, and grace upon sinners over and over again? Church, that is the mystery of the gospel that none of us can comprehend. But I am okay with that. Because it is a mystery that has saved me The mystery of the gospel is what has transformed me into the person that I am today. And it is a mystery that our faith is founded upon. It is the only way that the pain and sin and suffering and death of this world can be eradicated forever once and for all. It is only by something that you and I cannot comprehend, by the mystery of the gospel that is still the hope of the world. It's a mystery. And church, that's why uh, theology and and studying theology is important. It's a misnomer to identify the spiritual discipline of theology as impractical or detached from our everyday or spiritual life. It couldn't be any further from the truth because theology always leads to a fuller and robust understanding of the gospel. And as Paul said, we are not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and I know we live in a world that is so fast-paced that in a world where so many things are fighting for our attention and sometimes we take specific teachings of the Bible, specific doctrine and specific theology for granted. But whenever you take something for granted, you become weak in it. And so sometimes, every now and then, we need to 
as Christians and the church, get back to the basics, get back to the fundamentals of who we are, of why we live, and what is the telos, the end goal of our lives. And if this world is temporary and heaven is eternal, then understanding the purpose of our lives is critical. And understanding that the Father and the Son and the forgotten God, the Holy Spirit, are co-eternal, co-equal, and co-powerful is imperative to not only knowing who you are, but also living out by the power of the Holy Spirit grounded in the gospel and grace and forgiveness of Christ for us continually and that that was the Father's will and plan from all of eternity, knowing that is at the least helpful and at the most critical. So I just pray that, that our church would not just become a church, um, a community where we can find friends and spiritual brothers and sisters that, 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 that can support us and help us in times of, of challenging uh, seasons and adversity. I also pray that we would be a church that would be able to sharpen each other, as Proverbs talk about, as iron sharpens iron, to help us read your word and understand your word for the purpose of worshiping you and worshiping the God of the gospel so that we may be effective throughout the week as Christians and as the church. And so we thank you, um, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for loving us in your unique and distinct ways. And would you help us to be committed to learning more about who you are so that we can be in that fellowship with joy and tremendous encouragement and edification uh, for the betterment of our souls, for our relationships, for our marriages, for our emotional and mental health, and for our witness and our purpose and our calling in the world. We ask this uh, in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, amen.